Our scripture for this morning is 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 22. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully, as David your father did, and do all I command, and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne, as I covenanted with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you, and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? The people will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord for us. Good morning. What a joy it is to gather. Today is the day that we begin our binge reading the Bible event. We've been really expecting and anticipating and looking forward to this event. And uh, I just want to say thank you uh, to our church family, to all of, all of you for uh, the ways that you've rallied behind this, uh, this vision that our elders had to read the Bible cover to cover. Um, we're, we're trusting that it's going to be a really powerful and transformative experience for our church family. And so as I look at the sign-up sheets and we have people showing up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. to read the Word of God, uh, I am just blessed by that. You know, we can say that the scriptures are important to us. We can say that. And yet I think what we're going to do over these next days is really demonstrate that in a powerful way, that we do not live on bread alone, but on the Word of God. And so thank you, uh, church, for Uh, The ways you are kind of rallying together and participating in this event, uh, it's going to be fantastic. And I do want to invite you to come back Wednesday night. That's really kind of the culmination of the Bible reading event. We're going to gather at 7 o'clock right here. So please, come back Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. We're going to read the scripture together. Our friends from 412 Collective will be here uh, leading us in worship, and it's just going to be a great time together. So please don't miss that. We're going to talk this morning about history Anybody consider yourself a history buff here this morning? In other words, like history is your favorite subject. You love history. You, you can't get enough of books or movies about real live events and people and all of the things that have happened in the days of old. Um, let me speak to the four of you that raised your hands. You know history isn't boring. 
That, that's what you know. That, that's why you're like, I love history. You know that it's not boring. And I think sometimes history gets a really bad reputation where we view it as like, who cares about times and dates and old dead people? And, and I think sometimes we view the Bible that way too. I think sometimes we look at the scriptures and we go, I don't know. I don't really see it. It's a bunch of old people. It's a bunch of archaic stuff. And uh, I'm not sure that it's terribly interesting. I'm not sure that it's terribly relevant. So this morning, here's our task. As we're continuing, this is week two of our Binge Read the Bible sermon series for the summer. We're going to talk about the historical books. (laughs) And we're going to see, with the Lord's help, that these books and these scriptures are actually rather exciting. That they're filled with adventure and hope. And really, most importantly... These books help us see God's faithfulness through the stories of his people, through the stories of God at work in their lives, really through all of time, that God is indeed faithful. So let me introduce myself. I'm John, and I'm just so excited to have you with us this morning. Whether you're here in-house, live and in person, or you're tuning in online, I'm praying that through our time together, your heart and home grow stronger in the Lord. So we are going to talk this morning about the historical books. Let me give just kind of a brief overview again of what we're doing in this sermon series, because it's sort of preaching about the Bible, which is really interesting. Uh, But last week we kicked it off. We talked about the first five books in the Bible, which are the books of the law, and that they reveal God's love. This morning we're moving on to the next group or uh, genre. We're breaking the scriptures down into six different groups or genres. And so this morning it's the historical books. In the Old Testament there are 12 of these. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now we include the book of Acts, which is a New Testament book in this listing because this is sort of a history of the early church. Although I'll give you an insider comment. The book of Acts could probably just as easily be placed under the Gospels category. You could, you could easily make a case for uh, the, the book of Acts being placed there. Acts is really the second portion of a two-part volume written by Luke. Uh, but whether it's, whether it's here or there, we understand that Acts is different from the Old Testament books of history, which is really probably what I'll clue in on more this morning. Okay, a few other genres that we're going to highlight, one being poetry. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentation are all poetic books in the scriptures. And then the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And then again, we have a a little bit of a, a unique one in the book of Revelation. And so we put Revelation as a New Testament book of really apocalyptic literature uh, that is different from the Old Testament prophets and yet also fits uh, under... If you're breaking the Bible into six genres, uh, I think Revelation goes under prophecy. And then finally, uh, in the Gospels, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a unique genre that tell this, the stories of, the true stories, the birth and the life and the teaching and the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And then the letters. These include Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude. That's kind of what we're looking at together this summer is uh, what's all in the Bible? 
And we're going to binge read it together this week, and we're going to spend the summer learning about some of its different parts. And so let's key in on some history today. As we think chronologically about the beginning of time and creation and God establishing his covenant with, with the people of Israel and giving them the law, which is what we talked about last week, a whole new generation arose. A whole new generation. So the people who had received the law had all died. They had all passed away. And so now the people of Israel are under the leadership of Joshua. You see, Moses had died. And so it was time for this group of people to enter into the promised land of Canaan. And God had this really amazing plan for his people. He had this amazing plan to prosper them and to bless them. Like, they did need to go to war against some of the uh, people groups, the, 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 um, the, I guess you'd say they're their enemies that occupied that land. They needed to go to war against them. God had directed that to drive them out from the land. And when they went to war, when they were under God's sort of divine protection and in his will, they defeated their enemies. It didn't matter if the odds were stacked against them. They won these wars and they defeated their enemies. They were successful because God had blessed them. This land that God had, had uh, led them to, that God had promised them, we know it, and you can quote this, but it's the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. It is a land rich with resources. The grape clusters are so big in this land that it takes two men to carry them, a single grape cluster on a pole between them. That's how big the grapes are. That's the, uh, an image of the ways that God had blessed these people and led them to this rich place. But this generation forgot about God. That's right. You know, sometimes when life is easy, when life is carefree, when the grape clusters are so big, you just don't think you need God anymore. I think we can identify with that right here in the USA. Sometimes when life is easy and life is good, you forget about your need for God. And so what you experience, and this is what we see in the people of Israel, they experienced apathy in their faith. They didn't think they needed God. And so what they began to do is rebel against God and his word and his decrees. And so here's what happens in these historical books, sort of from the time they're entering the promised land uh, through their exile and their return uh, back to the land that God was faithful in. Here's what happens is we see this cycle of disobedience and deliverance. It's a cycle of disobedience and deliverance. And it's a little more nuanced than that, so let me unpack that a little bit. It begins with disobedience, where they disobey God. They've forgotten God, they don't need God, and so they do wrong. They, they sin, sometimes in very gruesome, grotesque ways. But they sin and they do wrong. Well, then they experience consequences. Because that's the way God has instituted his order, is that when we sin and go against God's law and God's plan, there are consequences that come into our life. Sometimes by the very hand of God, and sometimes just because that's the way he instituted it. And so they experience consequences because of their sin. Most often, what we see in the historical books is them being overtaken by their enemy. So they, they just keep getting beat by these people. They're like, man, with God on our side, we defeated everyone. And now all of a sudden, we're walking in rebellion, and we're just susceptible, we're vulnerable, we're weak. And so most often in this cycle of disobedience, they experience disobedience, then they experience consequence. Their enemies overtake them. Although other times it's famine or pestilence. And, and the descriptions we have of the people of God is they grow very, very 
ugly. They are a people who, who do detestable things, and they're filled with anger and, and, and hatred and violence. Like, you would not have wanted to read their headlines, although our, our headline's much better. School shootings and demanding a right for abortion. So, so in this cycle that we see through the historical books is disobedience followed by consequence, and then they call out to God. That, that's when they say, oh, God, help us. Oh, God, save us. Oh, God, rescue us. And you know what God does? He delivers them. He is faithful. He forgives them. He restores them. And typically then what happens is he raises up a leader. He chooses a godly person who's going to help to implement reform. He raises up a godly leader who's going to lead them back to the Lord. Uh, like in the book of Judges, we have this, these stories of 12 people, 12 judges that God used. Cycles of disobedience and deliverance and God raising up an ex-leader who he himself or herself was very flawed and did wrong, but God raises up these leaders. And then in 1 Samuel, of course, we have God choosing King David. Like he's going to be the leader who's going who's to rule. And in fact, even his descendants and his family line are chosen course we know something of our lord jesus that he came through the house and line of david the kingdom is led of course by king david we have a lot of his his stories in in these historical books the the chronicles of of david and his adventures and his mighty men but he dies and the, the kingdom gets passed on to his descendants and then the kingdom gets divided under his grandson and so then we've got israel in the north and judah in the south and both of them as we know fall to enemy attack. They're conquered by their enemies. They're taken into exile. But even there, God is faithful. This is kind of the ultimate conquering of, of uh, the enemy coming in. Uh, previous to this, when they were in bondage to their enemies, oftentimes it would be in the form of oppression, but they were still geographically located there. But when the nations of Israel and Judah were ultimately conquered, they were decimated and they were carried off. In other words, they're not even home anymore. But after 70 years of exile, God sent the remnant, those few remaining people who were faithful, he sent them back home. Why? Because God is faithful. So even in their ultimate uh, conquering by their enemy, God has been faithful and he leads his people home. Friends, it is so easy to see the gospel message even in the Old Testament. And so when we study the Bible... Even passages that have a tendency to be viewed as outdated or archaic or uninteresting, the gospel is there and is present. That God raises up a leader who will rescue, and that no matter how far you go, God will lead you home. Because why? Because God is faithful. And so, that's kind of, that's kind of what we see. This is broad, general overviews. But as you read the historical books, what you will see is cycles of disobedience, followed by consequence, followed by repentance followed by deliverance, disobedience, consequence, repentance, and deliverance. So the people of God fail over and over and over. You love fail videos on the internet, don't you? You love a good fail vid that just shows people trying stuff and, and utterly fail. Like, this is the ultimate fail vid. <laughs> the people of God just fail over and over and over and over and over. They mess up time and time and time again, but God 
never fails. And that's what we see in these historical books. Although the people of God fail, God never does. He's faithful. All of the things he promised come true. In fact, we read in Joshua 21, verse 45, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Not one. Every one was fulfilled. And so I just wonder, friends, as, as we look at our own lives, Do we see similar cycles? Do we see similar patterns of disobedience, consequence, repentance, and deliverance? Like, you're on fire for Christ, but then you doubt. Or or those those pitfalls come and ensnare you. Those, Those temptations lure you away from him, and you fall into those sinful habits, those sinful attitudes, only to be miserable. And then you cry out to the Lord, and you confess your need of him. And does God show up? From the mouths of babes. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes, church, a resounding yes. We probably have the same cycles in our own lives of disobedience and consequence and repentance and God's faithfulness to deliver us. Isn't it amazing that the same God from the Old Testament who was faithful to his people is faithful today in your life and mine? Isn't it comforting to know that even when we've done wrong, even when we've failed for the thousandth time, That he's faithful. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13. If we are faithless. He remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. And so these historical books. I wish wish we had time. In fact uh, I'll put it. I'll, I'll make a note of this in my study. That it would be great to do a whole sermon series. A whole year on just the adventures of the books of history. Um, But they're just filled with these extraordinary true stories. Some of the most, uh, I guess, graphic, some of the most memorable stories come from this section of the Bible. And they just show God at work. Like one of them would be the story of Gideon. And he's going to go into battle and he's got an army ready. And God goes, hold on, wait a minute. Okay, what's the issue, God? Do we not have the right armor? Okay, what's the issue, God? Do we need to do more training in hand-to-hand combat? And God goes, no, you have too many guys. Now, I don't know if you know anything about warfare in the ancient world, but, like, having manpower was a good thing. They would often assess the enemy by number of troops. Like, we've got 10,000, they've got 4,000, like, let's do this kind of thing. So God whittles down the army to 300 guys, and then he goes, now you're ready, go. And, of course, they defeat the Midianites. It's, It's an amazing story. And, and even then, in that story, uh, they go into battle with these 300 guys, and they don't even have weapons with them. They have a jar, and they have a trumpet, and they have torches. That's all they carry with them, and they defeat the Midianites. There are true stories about bears mauling teenage boys when they make fun of Elisha's bald head. <laughs> I think we touched on that last year, didn't we, when we did the stories of Elijah and Elisha? Um, there are uh, stories of this boy king, true story of a, a guy named Josiah, who at age eight became the king of his nation. It, it would be like electing president an eight-year-old and how he led in a way that was just so innocent 
so childlike, so pure, and what a beautiful thing. It's a true story that happens in these historical books, or all of the adventures of Samson, like the time he... Uh, caught all these was it 300 sets of foxes and he ties their tails together and he lights them on fire and then he sends them into the fields of the philistines to ruin their crops <laughs> uh, uh jl drives a tent peg through the head of uh, sisera the the enemy general there are giants there are witches there's the hero esther who saves her people from genocide. All of these amazing stories. And again, we don't have time this morning. I'm just mentioning a few that come to mind. Don't tell me that these books are boring. Don't tell me that it's just all dates and events and all dead people. These are extraordinary true stories filled with adventure. But above all, in it all, we see God's faithfulness. And then as we consider what role the Bible has in our own lives, I think we begin to see that their story is our story. (laughs) That it's the same God who operates in the same ways. Just like he worked then, he works now. That, That our story is like theirs in that it's a story of flawed people who serve a faithful God. And so we have hope. We have hope because of what God has done. We have hope because of what God is doing. And we have hope because of what God is going to do. And so I do want to key in this morning on one helpful passage. It's what Phil read for us from 2 Chronicles. You're welcome to turn there in your Bible. Chapter 7. This is where the Lord has a conversation with Solomon. Now that's the son of David. And he is the king of Israel. And the Lord tells Solomon in this chapter that he's pleased because Solomon has just recently built the temple. And so God is really kind of responding to King Solomon regarding how he's going to forgive, how he's going to uh, restore, how he's going to bless and help the people once they've repented. Because they're in the cycle. They're in the cycle of disobedience and consequence. They need to repent. And God says he's going to be faithful to deliver. So verse 14. The Lord says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I'll hear the, heal their land. So the places where you're sick and the places where you're frustrated and the places where you're walking in guilt and shame, the consequences of your sin, God says, I stand ready to forgive and restore and redeem and deliver you. Now, there's a flip side of this, of course. We see it in this same passage, this this same response from God to Solomon. There's a flip side. However, if you want to just keep worshiping these false gods, some some of which was very detestable, uh, really unmentionable uh, forms of worship, If you're going to turn your back on God, if you're going to be so uh, uppity that you don't need God or see see your dependence on him, then I'm going to make you an example, God says. I'm going to make you an example to the other nations by the judgment that comes on you. So if we jump down to verse 19. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you, in other words, I gave you the law. I gave you, follow these rules and you're going to flourish. You're going to be safe. You're going to be healthy. You're going to thrive. So if you follow those things that I've given you, if you turn away from those, rather, if you turn away from uh, the decrees and commands I've given you and you go off and serve other gods and you worship them, then I'm going to uproot Israel from my land. 
that I've given them. I'll reject this temple that I've consecrated for my name. I'll make it a byword and an object of ridicule among the nations. Of course, we know that when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple. He desecrated the temple. He ridiculed the people of God. This is, this is the God you worship? This is your sacred place? Here's something we know about God. He detests sin. God is holy. God is perfect. And he detests sin. And when God's people sin, so the people of Israel, back in these historical books, or the followers of Jesus today, those of us who, who've heard the truth of the gospel, when we choose to sin, it separates us and it breaks our fellowship with God. What a predicament. <laughs> that we, who, who, are, who are given to sin, who, who are sort of predisposed, predisposed to sin, when we do, we break fellowship with God. In fact, that's the predicament that the human race is in. But what good news? That God so desires a relationship with, this, with his creation, with humanity, that he sent his perfect and blameless son. See, there is one who doesn't, who doesn't sin. There is one who isn't feeble and filled with foolishness and folly, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the form as a man, but was fully God. And so the Lord sends Jesus, his one and only son, perfect and blameless as a sacrifice. And so then we know that he went to the cross, that he experienced the agony of crucifixion, that he shed his innocent blood, and that it's that blood of Jesus that atones for our sin. That it, it makes us righteous in the sight of God. He imparts his righteousness to us when we have faith and believe in him. And then God views us as holy. That's how we can have a relationship with God, because God detests sin. And so when we make mistakes and mess up and sin and go against the will of God, we break fellowship with him. But then when we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we call out for his shed blood... He makes us righteous. He imparts to us a righteousness and a holiness that only comes from God and not from us. And the sacrifice that Jesus made, it, it was once and for all. So that's the moment you place your faith in him. Does that mean you're perfect? No. But God's grace is sufficient. And so, just like the nation of Israel had this tendency to fall back into sin to mess up and to recognize after the consequence their need for God and call out to him again. That's what we experience as well. We experience these same cycles. But God's grace is sufficient. And he is faithful because he stands ready to forgive and to redeem time and time and time again. I would point out, though, as we're looking at Second Chronicles chapter 7, and the very beginning of 14, that there is a condition. And the condition is, because the, the verse starts with the word if. If my people who are called by, name, by my name will humble themselves. So what that means is we've got to admit our wrongs. What that means is we've got to acknowledge our sin, that we freely confess and proclaim our need for God. And so it's in that place of humility. It's in that place of, of dependence on God. 
what Jesus would have called the poor in spirit. It's in that place of humility and faith, trusting in God and only in his faithfulness, that we are restored, that we are healed. Remember who God's talking to here. Solomon. Uh, Do we need to do a brief character study on Solomon? Like, wisest man that ever lived. Richest man that ever lived. Like, this guy has access to anything. His renown is throughout the entire world. He has 700 wives. He He has it all. Like, Solomon has it all. And this is the one that God goes to to say, you gotta humble yourself. You gotta say, I don't have what it takes in and of myself, but I need you, oh God. I think sometimes our wealth keeps us from calling out to God. I think sometimes our status keeps us from calling out to God. I think sometimes our intellect gets in the way. I can figure it out. And the Lord says, all of those things have got to be laid to the side. And you've got to, verse 14 here, we're in Second Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, he says, will humble themselves. And so, church, we serve a faithful God, and he stands ready to deliver us in our predicament. But it's very clear that if we're still standing on our own strength and our own ingenuity and our own wealth and resources, that God says, fine, that's what you're trusting in. But it's when we say, oh, God, we have nothing apart from you. Oh, God, we've done wrong, that God stands ready to hear us, to deliver us. So the Lord says here to Solomon, like, if you will walk in the way of your father, David, God's going to establish your royal throne forever. And again, that's a that's a promise from the scripture that the Messiah, the anointed one. He's going to come through the house and line of David. Every page whispers the name of Jesus, even these Old Testament historical So before we conclude this morning, before we close our time together in God's word, I want to give you three times that you can experience God's faithfulness in your life. Three times that you can experience God's faithfulness in your life. And the first is when you struggle. When you struggle, God is there. When you're hurting, God is near. The scriptures tell us that, that he's near the brokenhearted. And so, yes, all of us experience hard times and difficulty and challenge. And some of you right now are facing really hard things, sicknesses, right? A conversation I had just this morning before service. If it's not one thing, it's another. This injury, this sickness, this surgery, another doctor's visit. Some are are facing financial pressure. Others are still walking through the process of grief because you've lost that special loved one. Others feel the grip of of darkness and depression and despair. Others have relationships that have gone awry and are broken. And I would say this. If things going well can lead to apathy, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, then let things going poorly lead you to greater faith. Do you hear what I'm saying there? If things going well tend to lead us to apathy in our faith, then let those things going poorly lead us to greater faith. God is faithful even when we struggle. 
Jesus never promised us that we would be immune from life's challenges. Here's what he promised us. I will be with you. What good news that God is faithful. Trust in God's faithfulness to lead you out of that darkness and into the light. The second place, the second way that you can experience God's faithfulness is when you're tempted. <laughs> we're all tempted. And we're tempted by different things, and we're tempted at different times and in different places. Here's my question. Where do you turn when temptation hits? Because you have an opportunity when temptation hits. You have an opportunity to flee it and to seek the Lord, or you have an opportunity to give in to it and to just charge right in and to allow yourself to, well, I fell into sin again. Well, were you walking toward the pit? Where do you turn when temptation hits? Every single one of us will experience temptation. Where do we turn when temptation hits? Turn to Christ. Cry out to the Lord, even in those times. Ask him to help you. Ask him to give you wisdom. Because honestly, what happens as you mature in Christ, as you grow in the Lord and get stronger and more mature in your faith, and this is uh, irrespective of your biological age, because there are very mature teenagers, spiritually mature teenagers. And there are spiritually immature infants who are older in age. So as you grow in Christ spiritually and you mature, God gives you wisdom to then learn those places and those habits and those times that tend to suck you in and lure you into temptation when you fall. And then you walk a wiser path to know when you're going to face temptation and how to avoid it. But the scriptures tell us that, that he's faithful. This is the teaching from 1 Corinthians. He's faithful when you walk through times of temptation. He, he will give you the strength. When you're faced with temptation, you can choose, by God's grace, not to sin. You can choose to stand strong. And part of the success that we experience in that, I'll just tell you right now, it's the word of God. Oh, what did Jesus do when he was tempted? Anybody know? Okay, Matthias says he prayed. I do think he sought the Lord. Jake says he quoted scripture. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The scriptures, my friend. When you walk through temptation, the scriptures that God has put in your heart and your mind that you've been diligent to study and to memorize, to meditate on, God uses those things to help you choose in that moment of temptation. I'm not going to succumb and do evil, but by God's strength, I will stand strong under this temptation and not fall into the pit. God is faithful even when you're tempted. Okay, there's a third place that I want to mention where God, you can experience God's faithfulness when you struggle, when you're tempted, and finally, when you've done wrong. <laughs> Again, we all make mistakes and we all sin. We all have those moments where we go against God. We think we know better. We trust in the wrong place. The temptation is, is so great and we give in to it. What do we do after that? Don't harden your heart and continue in rebellion. Soften your heart. Even when you've done wrong, humble yourself and seek the Lord. Even in times of failure, God shines through. 
So are we willing to admit that we've done wrong? Are we willing to ask God yet again, Lord, it's me, again, standing in the hour of need, would you forgive me again? God is faithful even when we've done wrong. He's merciful. So listen, as we study these historical books of the Bible and we see the stories of the people of of old, we can be encouraged because these are true stories and they highlight God's faithfulness. If God was faithful then, he will be faithful now. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you don't have to fear God's rejection when you've done wrong and when you've fallen short. You humbly come to him, admitting your need, and experience the deliverance that only he provides. Let me share a story that came out of the uh, 1988 Armenian earthquake. It was on a December day. The year was 1988. Uh, Samuel and Danielle. This is a true story. Samuel and Danielle were parents of a young boy named Armand, and uh, they sent him off to school. Before the boy went to school, the father took a moment with his son, and he said, have a good day at school, son, and remember, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. The little boy had a smile on his face. He was so happy to know that as he went off to school. They hugged, and off he went. And it was just hours later that this powerful, really historic earthquake uh, rocked the area. And in the midst of the pandemonium, Samuel and Danielle, the the parents of this boy, they they tried to figure out what had happened to their son, but they couldn't get any information. And they were hearing, of course, on the radio reports of thousands of casualties. So Samuel grabs his coat and he heads for the schoolyard. And when he reaches the area, immediately overwhelmed and floods with tears and grief because the school where their boy Armand attended was just a pile of debris. There were other parents that were just standing around crying. And Samuel goes to the place where Armand's classroom used to be. And he just begins pulling a broken beam off of the pile. And then he reaches in and he grabs a rock and he puts it to the side. And then he grabs another rock. And one of the other parents standing there says, what are you doing? He says, I'm digging for my son. The guy says, you're just going to make things worse. Don't you understand? Like, this is, a, this is a dangerous scene. This building is totally compromised. It's unstable. He tried to pull him away from it. Like, he is a crazy dad in grief. Like, don't, don't do this. Come away. But Samuel set his jaw and said, leave me alone. And he just kept working. As time wore on, other parents left the scene. In fact, a firefighter, an emergency worker came to that very site. And he did the same thing, and he tried to pull Samuel away from the rubble. And Samuel says, won't you come and help me? And the gentleman took off. So Samuel's alone, but he just kept digging. He dug all that day. He dug all that night. Through the night, this father just kept lifting beams and stones and debris. He didn't give up. He just kept digging. The other parents showed up the next day. I mean, they've got the the flowers and the memorial things. They're, They're setting up these memorials to their children that have been lost. But Samuel just keeps working. He's picking up another rock. He's picking up another beam. And all of a sudden, he hears a faint cry, help. 
until he listens, but he doesn't hear anything again. And maybe it was just in his mind. And he lifts another beam out of the way and he can very clear a muffled voice. And it's the voice of his son. He says, Papa. And so, of course, he begins to dig furiously. And he can see his boy down in this hole. And he says, come out, my son. And the little boy says up to him, no. He says, let the other children come out first. Because I know you're going to get me. So in this amazing dramatic scene, what happens is Samuel, this dedicated father, he begins pulling child after child after child out of the rubble, rescuing them until at last his boy Armand comes out safely. And he takes him in his arms and he embraces him. And the little boy says, I told the other kids not to worry because you told me this morning that you would always be there for me. Fourteen children were saved that day because one father was faithful. Friends, how much more faithful is our Heavenly Father who says no matter where you are, no matter what the predicament, no matter how trapped you are, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to leave you left for dead, but I will pursue you and I will rescue you. Whether you're trapped by fallen debris like these children or it's life's hardships, we are never cut off from God's faithfulness. He is true to his character. He's reliable. He is trustworthy. He can be counted on always. We see it in these books of history that God is faithful through all of time. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this picture you've given us of helpless children trapped by rubble and a father who relentlessly digs for them to rescue. And so, Lord, we can simply say thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for reaching into our predicament Thank you for moving heavy stones that we ourselves could not move. Paying a debt that we could never pay so that we might be free. So Lord, today we celebrate, we worship you, we thank you, we honor you. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, empower us to live lives of devotion to you? Not because we're obligated to, not because we earn our salvation, but in grateful response, Lord, walking in obedience to a faithful God. So thank you, Lord, that you accomplish that in us and through us, and you do it in a way that displays to the whole world your goodness and your faithfulness. Church, this morning, if there's anyone who wants to come forward for prayer, as we close the service, I would invite you to do so. Our prayer team will be here and available and would just love to come alongside you to help walk with you out of the darkness and into the light. So, Lord, thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for who you are. We bless you. We pray it only in the precious name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.